What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the What's Up Finance Podcast, a podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any other worthwhile topics and discussions. My name is Matthew Campbell, and joining me is my partner, Camden Elkanati. Today, we are very happy to welcome Scott Monroe. Scott Monroe has decades of experience in public and private real estate management and investment, and he now operates a growing private real estate company in the Orange County area specialized in affordable housing. Hello, Camden, and thank you for joining us today, Scott. Hey, everyone. Today, we'll be discussing what's affordable housing, real estate, and success, and we'll be talking to Scott Monroe. So to begin, uh, maybe you could tell us about your background, your childhood, and where you grew up. Sure. Well, welcome, gentlemen. Um, essentially, my background real estate background from day one. My father was a successful real estate investor and real estate broker up in Northern California. And so from uh, my very beginnings, always involved in real estate, having to assist with his rental properties. Um, And then from that point forward, had an opportunity to move away from my father's operations and work outside of the family had experience working uh, with different organizations that specialized in real estate development, including acquisitions, obviously development, um, and management. So as a child, you were always exposed to real estate. At dinner, would you speak about real estate in the business in your dad's company or your dad's work? Uh, we would. And it's funny you mention that because actually I, I share with a lot of people like it was so uh, close to home. We used to empty the laundry machines and, and have to count quarters at the dinner table sometimes to roll them up and, and deposit them in the bank. But oh, wow. Frequently a topic of uh, conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So. Now, was your whole family involved with this operation or was it just your father? It was primarily my father, um, as well as my grandparents had some real estate holdings that I had the opportunity to work on as well. Now, this was in Northern California. What would you say the biggest difference is between real estate in Northern California and real estate in Southern California? That's an interesting question. Um, The fundamentals are are virtually the same. I think what is different are the pockets of, um, the lack of pockets of affordability actually. In, in the Northern California markets, when you are concentrated around the Bay Area itself, it's very, very expensive, as, as many of you have heard. And as you go farther east, it becomes more affordable. What's interesting, there's been a transition in the Bay Area where outlying areas such as Antioch and Pittsburgh, things of that nature, used to be very, very affordable housing. And now those two have become very expensive. In Southern California, it's expensive um, in different pockets as well. And again, you have to travel east and get away from the coast. The further away from the coast, the more affordable it becomes. What's happening is that even those areas too are, are not as affordable as they once were. And so there's been a tremendous push to migrate even further and go as far as the desert communities, such as Lancaster, and then on the other side of the Apple Valley, Hesperia, and things of that nature. What were your other biggest influences in your life? And how did your upbringing influence your life 
and is it still impacted today? I think obviously one of my biggest influences was my father. Um, he was a man with very limited education, um, never went to college, uh, and basically started with nothing. Um, he was a single child in a single parent household. Started out as a garbage man in San Francisco and became a painter, did all sorts of work. And then one day, um, apparently he broke his ankle or something of that nature and was laid up. So he started reading real estate books. That's how he became involved. So I looked to him, uh, how he was able to get through his personal struggles and become very successful. Uh, and I learned quite a bit from him. The hardest thing is that there was a point where he became terminally ill still but still went to work every single day because that was what motivated him the most wow an inspiration my biggest influence so what was that transition from reading real estate books into getting into real estate and acquiring property how was he able to do that because it takes money it takes resources it takes uh, many factors to be able to enter the real estate market and be successful in it? That's an interesting question because I, don't, I hadn't really asked him specifically his transition from reading books to beginning the investment. What I can remember is that he would buy uh, fixer-upper properties um, and do the work himself. And then as I became older, I would go and assist him as a young man, young boy actually, assist him in fixing up some of his investment properties. And same thing with my grandparents. They had investment properties, fixer-uppers, and we would go out there and paint or mow the lawns or clean or whatever it took to get those particular homes into a marketable condition. I think the other thing my father did was he transitioned, again, he went into the real estate industry and concentrated mostly on brokerage and became a very, very large real estate broker up in Northern California. At one point he had 10 offices and 120 agents working for him. Wow. So is that how you would recommend um, somebody starting in today's world? Would you recommend they start with fixer-upper properties and flip them or rent them out? What would you say is the best way to get started? The best way from, from my perspective to get started is to get your feet wet. And that's to go out there and get a, get a fixer-upper. And for a young person, knowing the affordability issues, what I would recommend is that somebody invest in, let's say, a duplex, two units, live in one, so they can get attractive financing for owner-occupied, and fix up and rent the other. And then, that's, and then go from there. That's, to me, a way to start. The issue that you face today is a, a lack of, in many cases, unfortunately, a lack of skill set. So let me, let me give you clarification on that. When I went to high school, there were classes taught in wood shop and metal shop and auto shop. So you could learn how to turn a wrench essentially and fix things. And today those classes for the most part have been eliminated. For young people today, trying to figure out how to do those things is probably a little bit more challenging. Although they have the benefit of going to YouTube and certainly, you know, taking a look at it from that perspective. But if there is the desire and passion to work and, and create your own wealth, there is an opportunity. 
just got to go out there and work hard and do some things you've never done before. The other thing is many young people have grown up in a very affluent society and have not experienced, you know, having to, to work hard and clean things that are very dirty and, and things of that nature. And, and again, when you own real estate, the best way to learn is to do it yourself as much as possible when you're first starting. So you, you understand and appreciate the value of your investments, but also as you grow, you will now understand when somebody gives you a, a bid for work or something of that nature, you'll understand what, what they're going through and, and how they arrive at their numbers, having that direct experience. That's some excellent advice. Thank you for that. Now you started your schooling in Northern California and then transitioned to uh, Oregon to study at University of Oregon. What were your subjects of strength? What did you like studying in school? You know, I, I think uh, I look back at University of Oregon and, and really what I try to concentrate was the business curriculum, in particular accounting. And I think that is directly attributable to some guidance I received from my father because accounting skills uh, go anywhere with you. They, they help you in your personal life and they help you in your professional life. So I concentrated on accounting, uh, number one, and then number two, uh, general business classes, uh, including legal class, real estate class, marketing, et cetera, et cetera. And you told me once that you started out at University of Oregon, and then you had to either uh, drop out or delay your studies due to the affordability issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, I was the first one in my family to attend college. And I think what happened is that there wasn't um, sufficient planning in advance for the cost of going to college. And so I went to the University of Oregon and did not have the funds to carry me all the way through. Um, so it was a two-year experience there. Then I transferred down to Southern California, or to, excuse me, Northern California, Cal State Hayward, and had to work my way through the rest of my college uh, career, so to speak. So it took me um, seven years to get a, a four-year degree, but... Um, you appreciate it at the end of the day and you got it and, and you move on. Looking back, I, I think I would uh, do things differently and, and whatnot, but uh, it was a good experience at the time. Now, what do you think about the education of today's students and the affordability of university? The, the uh, education today is very interesting. There's um, what I'm finding is that many, kid, many young people uh, certainly going to school and I appreciate you know their tenacity in, in getting a degree because uh, I know it takes uh, fortitude to do that. What, what I don't see is the practicality of some of the coursework that is uh, that they're compelled to take and how that applies to the business world. And so I, I find young people that I discuss things with coming out with, with uh, certainly the skill to be able to accomplish something, but not necessarily the skills to be able to achieve something. And that, that's what's discouraging to see, especially given the cost of, of school, whether it be public or private, and the, the commit, not only the financial commitment, but the time commitment. 
I just don't think young people are being prepared to enter into the business world as they once were. Now to go back to your childhood, do you think you realize where you would have ended up today? And uh, what were your thoughts about your future? Looking back, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, starting a family business, so to speak, working with my, my father in particular, uh, coming out of college, always having the better ideas and things of that nature. And, you know, it didn't work in a family situation. So I moved on. Did I, am I at a place where I thought I'd be? Absolutely not. I mean, every day, you know, you're, you're throwing a new curve or you learn something new and, and your life moves from that point forward. I had no expectation to be where I'm at today. It just happened to fall into place after some hard work. It's a great answer. Now, would you say that you are a natural born leader or did you have to learn to be a leader? Well, I, I think I have, um, I'm comfortable being a leader. Uh, I'm comfortable, comfortable being a risk taker, uh, making tough decisions things of that nature. So I think that's innate in a, in a lot of ways, but I think there's some things that are learned along the way to be an effective leader. Um, and, and one of the things that I have really learned in a leadership role is that you will not please everyone. There will, pe there will be a group of people that you're leading and you can be assured not everyone will agree with what you're doing. And, and you have to have the professional stamina to get through that because at times it's very discouraging when people don't want to follow your direction. And you just got to learn to live with that. But again, back to the original question, I think some of it was just innate and you're just being comfortable in your own skin. Great. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, so you mentioned how you got started in real estate um, and interested because of your dad and you started working with your dad. Could you talk more about how you got started in real estate and kind of bring us through your career a little bit? So I uh, leave the family business and, and I work for, at that time, um, in the uh, early 80s, I worked for a individual named Dale Luger, um, very bright individual. And he, his tactic was to go into distressed, low-income areas and buy foreclosure properties. These were in uh, East Oakland, California, West Pittsburgh, California. So very, very uh, low-income and very dangerous areas, actually. But the intent was to buy the foreclosures and uh, fix them up and then sell them or finance them and move to the next deal. So I was hired to do the property management for Dale and did that for a period of time. And then another property manager at the same firm, we ended up uh, starting our own property management company. Uh, as Dale's business uh, wound down, we, we took over that those accounts that he was you know under his management umbrella, did our own company and then secured other uh, properties to manage. That was my first partnership opportunity and um, should have learned from that lesson, but having partners is always challenging. So we parted ways and then I ended up joining a company called Prometheus, which is a very uh, prominent developer 
of both commercial and multifamily properties in Northern California. It was uh, in a privately held firm uh, by a gentleman named Sanford Diller, extremely successful individual. And that gave me an opportunity to get exposed to higher end properties uh, on the multifamily side. And so I was started out as a regional manager and, and moved my way up in that organization. And when I was recruited away by uh, Security Capital to come to Southern California, I left Prometheus managing about 10,000 units. And then I moved to Southern California. Uh, and I was hired by a publicly traded company to start up their West Coast uh, management operations uh, for the multifamily properties that they were aggressively acquiring in the heydays of the real estate investment trusts. Worked for uh, Security Capital, which became known as Archstone. Uh, became moved into the senior VP role, had 15,000 units under my belt. Uh, and then Archstone uh, began to move in a different direction. Um, and so I moved on to a company called Ceres Regis, another privately held company in Southern California which developed both industrial, commercial, and multifamily for rent and for sale product. And I was responsible for the Southern California operations there as well. So I had a, a good run with them. And during that time, had an opportunity to invest in my first mobile home park uh, on a, and became exposed to a whole new real estate discipline, manufactured housing slash mobile home parks. And I uh, saw that as an opportunity to, to move into and then um, slowly but surely move, continue to acquire in that space, built up a large enough portfolio to essentially leave the corporate world and uh, just work with my own real estate investments going forward. Now you spoke about a couple of things. Um, you spoke about managing large portfolios of units and also um, working for public and private real estate companies. At what number of units does it become the same? Whereas like you manage a thousand, you manage 5,000, it's like the same amount of work. Is that, this, is that similar to like, if you manage 10,000 or 20,000, do you think the same amount of work is applied? Or is it a different difficulty level? I don't know if it's so much a different difficulty level. Um, what, what's different as you, your portfolio grows, your infrastructure grows, and the amount of, amount of people that are under you grows and, and things of that nature, and that always brings its own complications. Um, I think the bigger difference is between public and private. And when you're working for a, a private company, there is a, an emotional component that you do not see in the, private, in the, in the public sector. So case in point, when I worked at Prometheus, Sanford Diller, who at that time was worth a significant amount of money and was, was uh, probably in his late 60s, was still involved in the day-to-day -day design of each of the multifamily properties that he developed. And he was so involved, he would actually get out his architectural ruler and his so solar calculator and determine the size of how big the closet was going to be in one of his particular multifamily developments. And so there, there you see kind of an emotional, passionate component 
that I did not see in the, in the public sector. The public sector, what you are so focused on is earnings per share. And so everything was about forecasting and making sure we were meeting Wall Street's expectations, the analysts' expectations, uh, and bottom line, the earnings per share that had been communicated to, to Wall Street. So again, less, less of an emotional business with the uh, public sector as compared to the private sector. So I think, to me, that's where a greater difference was as compared to the size of the portfolio, per se. So size doesn't matter? It, it does because the bigger you get, the more, you know, you get more, um, you're more attractive to vendors and, and it's easier to recruit and, and things of that nature. So size does count. Um, but again, operationally, it's not much different aside from if it's public as compared to public versus private, where it is much different. Now, from my own experience and observations, real estate is a very lucrative asset to have, um, and many people become wealthy from it. Why would you say people become wealthy from real estate? What's so attractive about that asset? Well, first of all, it takes a long time to become wealthy. Um, and one of the, the common denominators that I've seen for people that have become wealthy in real estate is that they have a very, very long-term hold perspective. You certainly can buy and flip real estate and make some short-term gains, but to become truly wealthy, the, the individuals I've worked with have all held their assets for an extended period of time. And the second thing, they, they've had to look to bring in partners to help grow that base of real estate holdings. So it is very lucrative, but it takes a long time to get there. One of the things that I see attractive to real estate as compared to other types of investments, real estate, you can go out and touch it every day if you want to. It's a fixed, fixed asset, it's there. Uh, and you have control over 90% of that asset. And I contrast that to having investments in, in stocks and bonds and things of that nature where it's all on paper and you have absolutely no control. And, and you can kind of equate that to, to being on a commercial airplane. You're in the hands of someone else the entire time. Well, with the stock portfolio, it's the same thing. You're in, you, know, you are trusting your money somebody else. When you own your own real estate, you are making the decisions as to the direction of that real estate. And you're able to go out there and look at it every day if you so choose. And I think that's what creates kind of a unique opportunity in the investment world is the amount of influence you actually have on your holdings. Would you say that um, real estate is an overcrowded investment or it's overcrowded with competition? Um, would you say there's also possibly still opportunity in real estate for younger people? Well, first of all, there's always opportunity. Um, always opportunity, no matter what the market conditions are and, and things of that nature. What is essential is that you find your niche. What, what are you going to take on that other people are overlooking? So to answer your question, is there up, you know, opportunity? Absolutely. And it's, it's a crowded field right now in a lot of ways um, for, I'll call institutional level type properties for sure. 
because there's a tremendous amount of money out there chasing very few properties. There's also tremendous competition for anything between 50 units and up, because again, these are more privately held investment firms with a lot of money because there's very few alternative investments out there. But again, for a young person who's willing to take on an element of risk, and that risk could be uh, taking on an asset that's, that's in bad condition, maybe it's in a transitioning neighborhood, et cetera, there's absolutely opportunity. What's hard for young people today is they've grown up in a society where everything is kind of a perfect world. And you know that's not, how, that's not really what it's all about. You've got to go out in those imperfect situations and create, create an opportunity to make it more perfect so it's desirable. But again, uh, if you're going out after things that look pretty to begin with, you will not find that opportunity as compared to if you go out to those things that need, need a little uh, TLC. So I've got a question that both of you can weigh in on. For our listeners who don't know, Camden recently started working kind of in real estate as an analyst. And Scott, you just finished going over your many years of extensive experience. I'm curious to see how you think real estate has changed over the years, maybe like along with technology or just as people have moved and markets have changed. What do you think is different now versus, you know, 10, 20 years ago? Certainly the technology aspects changed significantly. And I think um, as an easy example to understand is, is everything's online with regards to marketing and things of that nature. Whereas in the past you had to rely on traditional print publications. Those things are, are no longer out there. It's really everything's um, online from apartments.com to Craigslist, whatever the case might be. So that to me has been one a significant change, as well as the utilization of uh, virtual tours and, and, and those types of things. The other thing that's changed, I think, in real estate is that the consumer, or the renter in this case, has greater access, not only to seeing what your competition is, obviously, but also to different resources. Um, and that, that creates some challenges in itself when they have direct access, uh, again, to these whole host of uh, sort resources that sometimes can pit a landlord against the renter or renter against the landlord. Uh, that, that becomes very challenging at times. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, so moving forward, what do you see kind of being like the next developments maybe? You mentioned like virtual tour, tours, that kind of stuff. Going forward, do you think there's gonna be some more changes? I do. What's, what's interesting now because of this whole COVID pandemic experience is that you're already reading articles where there will be a shift in how with design. And that's uh, something else that I saw before. If you go back to uh, when 9-11 occurred, after 9-11, before 9-11, people were really into their own personal space and things of that nature. Um, 9-11 occurs, all of a sudden there's a desire to have some socialization. So in the old days, you used to build an apartment de development with a rec room and things of that nature. There became a point where those were not utilized at all. 9-11 occurred, all of a sudden there was a demand to have some of that social gathering again. 
With this pandemic, it'll be interesting because will it go the opposite way? Will people be afraid to have those social gatherings, even though there's been some tremendous improvements in, in development of common areas at multifamily developments? Will people be concerned about having those gatherings? And you know, who knows um, what the future holds for us, but that's one of the things that there could be a tremendous shift. The other thing that I think is still in a shift that's waiting to occur is with um, fully sustainable, and I'm going to call it off-grid type housing developments. I, I just personally think that there is a tremendous opportunity to be out there um, being one of the first developers to create a 100% off-grid environment uh, and, and probably focusing on smaller living units, the whole tiny home movement and, and things of that nature. Uh, but with the technology that's available today, you almost can build a 100% off-grid sustainable development, even in a highly populated area. Can you give more detail on that? What is a sustainable environment? From my perspective, what sustainable uh, environment would be where not only are most of the products that you use to build the individual units, you know, uh, recyclable materials, uh, renewable materials, et cetera, but with the underlying infrastructure. So as an example, right now there's technology where you can pull humidity out of the air to create a water source for your home. Called sky water technology, and essentially, you would not have to rely on a water distribution system, a conventional water distribution system. You also have the benefit of solar. You also have the benefit of wind power. So all of these things can help you develop a sustainable community. The other thing that's that's happening is that there's more and more technology towards treating of gray water and black water. So once those things are fully bedded out and proven, in theory, you could bring in uh, manufactured homes, pre-manufactured or modular homes that are 100% reliant on themselves, so to speak, and you would not need the common utility infrastructure that you need today. If that were to occur, your development costs could drop exponentially because when you develop affordable housing or any housing, the cost of infrastructure is a significant portion. So if these homes are able to generate their own water, generate their own power, and treat their own gray and black water, uh, that, that is a potential to save a tremendous amount of money and do the right thing for the environment. Now you speak about how it's very important to find your niche. And you spoke previously on how your niche is affordable housing in the mobile home space. Why did you choose that niche? It wasn't intentional. Um, I fell into it, actually. Uh, a long-term business partner of mine um, introduced me to uh, mobile home parks slash manufactured housing uh, when I told him I had some monies to invest. And we made an investment in a mobile home park in Apple Valley, California. And we worked it for a period of time. And 
at the end of the day, we said, why haven't we been doing this since day one? And what's interesting, even though I grew up in a real estate environment all my life, I had really not been exposed to this particular asset class. So once I fell into it, um, we just saw that it's a business model that at that time for the smaller properties was not sophisticated and, and essentially lacked a professional management approach to a mom and pop industry. Now, I want to clarify that that does not include larger, what they call five-star communities that are professionally managed. Most of the mobile home park space is small mom and pop owners, and they are not sophisticated. Um, and so this, saw, this created an opportunity for us to come in there and buy these properties and elevate the management um, and, and create a level of sophistication at the smaller property level that had not been experienced before. Now, how would you analyze a potential investment property um, in this mobile home space? Well, it's very similar to any acquisition. I mean, you the first thing you do, obviously, you're looking at location and you're making sure you're comfortable with that. Then you're looking, then you look at the demographics of the area. You're looking at the quality of the asset as it is today and how what you could do to improve that, if anything. Um, you're looking at the age of the infrastructure and then you're looking at where the rent position is in relation to what the market is. So it's very similar to looking at a multi-family investment or any real estate investment. Um, the difference, one of the differences that we've learned over time is that it's important to acquire a mobile home park in an area where conventional housing is, is very expensive. So if you know the surrounding communities have very low barriers to entry for single family homes, it's more difficult for you to push uh, the return on investment on a mobile home park. But if uh, single family homes are, are expensive, and not affordable and, and hard to hard to get into, it makes a mobile home park that much more attractive. Now, what have been your biggest achievements and what have been your biggest failures? I think my biggest achievement uh, is probably being able to start a business and go through various real estate cycles uh, and be able to, to still have a business. Um, there's a lot of times when there is a slowdown in the economy, a lot of businesses uh, fail. And I think we've been able to weather the storm and uh, ride it out and continue to expand our portfolio year after year. If I look at what do I think the greatest failure is, I think one of the things that um, I have failed to do is, is I've missed some opportunities, actually. Um, I look at, we're now in the Florida marketplace, and I kick myself because we should have been out there you know, four or five years ago. Um, and I think we would have been a much larger company, 
and had a lot of success out there had we been in Florida uh, earlier. What's interesting about Florida, though, is that the model's different. So the investment type we're going after is different. It's uh, multifamily is our specialty out in Florida. We did some mobile home parks, which we have out there, but the model is different and it has not been as successful for us. So to answer your question, the biggest failure, I think, is not spotting the opportunity in the multifamily market in Florida you know, five, six years ago. Now, you grew up and you were part of uh, family business, helping your dad out with his operations. And now you have some family members working for you. Uh, you work with your wife and you have uh, your children work for you. How do you differentiate work life and personal life? And is it more difficult to work with your family? Well, let me answer the second question first. Yes, it's difficult to work with your family. Um, you, and number two, you don't differentiate, unfortunately. When you own your own business, whether it's real estate or not, it's 24-7. And you have to go in when, you own, when you're going to own your own business, understanding that. You can't shut it off. Um, and in some ways, that's okay, because you can't shut it off. And, and let's say the weekend comes around and the phones are died down. You're still reading about your industry. You're still trying to figure out what your next deal is going to be or how you can improve operations. And you could be doing that, discussing that with your family members or just on your own. You're just always, it's 24 seven. You're always thinking about it on how you can do better. What can you acquire? What can you, what do you need to divest? What do you need to refinance? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's um, at times very challenging. Um, and it's hard to shut it off, to be honest with you. Would you want more of a balance or do you like how it is now? There's days I absolutely want more balance. But if I wanted it, if I wanted it any different, I would change what I'm doing. Great. So why did you decide to go out on your own and start your own company? And could you talk about how you did that? the decision to go out on my own was that again we, we found this real estate niche these mobile home parks and just saw it as an opportunity um, to create a business model which which we've done when you work one, one of the things that i've learned when you work for somebody in most cases you're not going to create wealth for yourself you'll create a steady income you'll have bonuses or bonus potential You'll have uh, people around you to, to help, you know, to work with and socialize with and things of that nature. But with all the companies I worked for, I never saw an opportunity to, to create wealth. And so by investing on my own is where you get an opportunity to do that. So I think that's what was the driver for myself and my wife is that because she was working for large uh, companies as well, different industry, that we weren't building our wealth. So let, let's go out there on our own and, and give it a try. I think that's great advice too, that's is to focus on building your wealth versus just a steady income. I think the other thing too, that, and, and certainly in the corporate world today, um, 
the corporate world is driven you know by the bottom line and you are you're at risk every day you're at risk of I hate to say this losing your job um, and I'll never forget I was at one company we had an outside speaker come in and he said you should always have your resume updated because you never know if you're going to be there the next day. Um, the loyalty to employees today is gone. And it's, it's the same thing on the employee side. The loyalty to the company is gone. So again, you work for somebody, you're at risk about having that job tomorrow. And I, and I don't mean to be a doomsday guy or anything like that, but it's a fact of life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now with starting your own business and operating your own company and managing it, there's many divisions and departments that you have to oversee and run. What is the most difficult department that you had to operate? Is it the HR? Is it the PR? Is it um, the acquisitions? Is it the management side? Well, let me answer a little differently than what's the most difficult. If, if I were anybody starting out today, I would highly recommend that they have their accounting, their, their accounting in order because you spend a considerable amount of time as you grow trying to understand where you are financially. And so having good accounting is essential going forward. The other thing is, is especially in California, understanding HR is, is uh, all too important today. Um, you are a tremendous risk in California when you operate and you have, there are so many rules and regulations so having the ability to access individuals that are HR professionals is, is very important as well. There will be times where you still break the rules because you, you have to. Um, you can't follow every single rule and be successful. Um, and you've got to weigh that out. But uh, again, having that resource is critical when you're starting out. At what point in your career have you realized that you achieved success or have you not realized that yet? Well, how would you define success? My definition is different from yours. So let's hear yours first. Well, I think that's a hard question to answer. Um, I, I think one of the things you feel successful when you're able to step out on your own and continue for an expanded extended period of time on your own. That, that's an element of success. Uh, I think there's success, obviously, financially, which is easy to measure. You know, you look, is your, is your balance sheet in, improving or not? Um, that's another element of success. But again, I, success comes in, in many different ways. Um, the ability to, to call your own shots is, is a level of success. It's kind of a hard question to pinpoint specifically. Um, what are your future goals, and how do you manage and keep your goals organized? The future goals, if I look at for the company, it's, it's to continue to acquire uh, real estate assets, either multifamily or manufactured housing. And I think one of the, the bigger goals is at some point to do our own development, whether it be a tiny home village, tiny home village or uh, traditional manufactured housing or multifamily housing. So that, that, that's one of the goals. I think the other goal is to develop 
to, to develop my um, adult children into to leaders. Uh, and as they become more interested in the company, at some point hand it off to them um, and allow my wife and I to, to travel and do what we'd like to do. So that transitions into the exit plan. What is your exit plan and how do you think it'll all end? Our exit plan actually is, is not finalized. Um, one of the things that you will find when you create your own business is that it's very hard to step away 100%. And so we don't have a defined exit plan yet because one of the things that we're struggling with, and when I say words, my wife and I is, how can we go from working you know, all the time to not working at all? And we don't think we can. So we're trying to develop an exit plan where some of the day-to-day -day operations are turned over to others and the more strategic decisions remain with us. That's probably phase one of our, I'll call it exit plan. Although we don't know, it's just subject to change. Matthew, any other questions you have? No, you really were able to provide a ton of insight and in a short amount of time, we really thank you. And I'm, I know that our listeners were able to get a ton of value in everything you had to share today. And Scott, would you like to add anything else or share anything else? I'd just like to share, you know, again, um, take the risk. If you, if you never try, you'll never know. So take the risk. If you're a young person, you want to get involved in real estate, you know, go out there and take the risk. There's a lot, tremendous amount of resources available for individuals that want to do that. Um, and the rewards, uh, you hang in there, you go through some ups and downs and things of that nature. Uh, the rewards are endless. I encourage you to try it. Great. That's a great note to end it on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. And thank you, everybody, for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed this week's What's Up podcast. We would love to hear your feedback and to hear what's up in your lives. So feel free to check out our website and shoot us an email in the pod in, at the address in the podcast notes below. Thank you.